can go ahead and open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. came across a story this week of a monk who joined a monastery and took a vow of silence that prevented him from speaking at all, except for once every ten years he was allowed to say two words. And so after his, his first ten years in the monastery, his superior called him before him and said, okay, now you can speak two words in keeping with your vow. What would you like to say? And the monk replied, food bad. Well, another ten years went by, and the monk was again summoned before the, the father there at the monastery, and he had an opportunity to voice his thoughts again, and with his two words he said, bed hard. Well, he, he stuck with it though, and another ten years went by, and once again he was called before the superior one more time, and he said with his two words, I quit. Well, his, his superior replied to him, well, that doesn't surprise me one bit because you've done nothing but complain ever since you got here. <laughs> Complaining. That's something that uh, it all comes kind of naturally to us, doesn't it? We naturally are complainers. It is nat comes natural to our flesh. Most of us, if perhaps if not all of us, have probably already complained about something today. Yep, I am guilty myself. And yet, even though we do it, we all recognize that this isn't a good thing, right? Even society recognizes that constant complaining, it's, it's bad. Nobody wants to be around the person that's just dragging everybody down all the time with their complaining. It just pulls everybody down. I used to work with a guy who was just notorious for his ability to find something to complain about in any situation. And it just wore on all of us as co-workers, and it rubbed off on us until we were also complaining. But... We were complaining about what? Well, the fact that this other guy was complaining, right? So it was just this ongoing thing that went on. But did you know that complaining has actually been scientifically proven to be bad for your health? I learned that this week. I didn't know that before. It's just that's an interesting thing. It's, it's scientifically proven to be bad for your health because it releases certain chemicals in the brain that increases stress levels... And consequently, over time, can actually even shorten your lifespan. So complaining is not good for your health. But we actually have even better reasons than even that to refrain from complaining. To keep ourselves from venting about this, that, or the other thing. And, and we're going to see that in our text today. Philippians chapter 2 is, is where we are and. As we come into this section, you know, Paul has been communicating some things about humility, and this really is, comes down to the practical application of everything that he has been teaching us about humility up to this point. If we were to go back all the way back to ch the end of chapter 1, we find that Paul has been urging us to live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ and urging us to stand firm in one spirit. He wants us to be unified as the body of Christ. But this unity can only take place when we are willing to act in humility, to show deference to one another, to recognize that it's not all about you. It's not all about me. 
but rather if we can humbly show deference to others if, as we live with one another, that we're not trying to advance our own desires and our own agendas, but rather seeking to serve others. Humility. And so, of course, he gives us the, the prime example of Jesus Christ, example par excellence, the one who did not use his position for his own selfish reasons, but selflessly gave of himself to take the lowest position possible. And because of what he willingly did, he was exalted by the Father. Well, in light of what Christ has accomplished, Paul then give, gets into the practical application of these things. When we gaze upon what Christ did, as we consider the exhortations that Paul is giving us to humbly be united with one another, humbly serve one another, he urges us to work out our salvation or to show the results of your salvation. But we can do so with confidence and we can do so with joy because ultimately it is God who works within us for His good pleasure. And that's what we studied last week. And that brings us up to the passage under examination today. Paul continues his exhortations to the church. And from our text today, we are going to see that there are four results of living lives of humility. Four results that should be borne out in our lives if we are pursuing lives of humility. First, is that humility demands that we live with joy. Humility demands that we live with joy. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, this just very well may be one of the most difficult commands in all the Bible. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. We love to whine and complain, don't we? It just, it just comes naturally to us. It just flows out from us. And yet here we have this command, and in the original text, it, it emphasizes the all things aspect of that sentence. All things do. It's kind of fronted at the beginning of the sentence in the Greek. All things do. Everything, every sphere of life, every aspect of your life, not just parts of your life over here, not just this segmented part of, of what you have going on in your life. No, it's, it's every part of your life is to be marked by an absence of grumbling and disputing. Everything we do in life, no matter what, no matter where, we're to do so without these two things. So what are they? Grumbling. Grumbling refers to exactly what it sounds like. Grumbling. It's, it's complaining. It's, in fact, the original word in the Greek actually sounds like the action itself. When you pronounce the original word, it just kind of sounds... You're just, you're just grumbling. Like it's, just, it's words spoken, something muttered under our breaths... And we do this, right? We, we mumble things to ourselves. We complain about this, that, or the other thing. It just kind of flows out from ourselves. And Paul says, no, don't do that. Don't go there. Live your life free from grumbling. I was thinking about some of the things that we might find ourselves 
grumbling and complaining about the most, and this is the part of the message where I start going from preaching to meddling, as my pastor used to say. <laughs> well, where, where are some areas within your life that you can reflect and say, oh, you know what, I have actually been kind of grumbling and complaining about these things. In the last 18 months have revealed lots of opportunities for that in our lives, have they not? Lots of opportunities. We think back on the, the things that government has done. The mask mandates, the social distancing, the different restrictions that were in place. How many of us could honestly say that we made it through those times without grumbling or complaining? My hand is not up for a reason. Right? I have succumbed to this myself. But it's not just there. We just raise it to any political issue that you can think of. And we all find a way to complain about these things. But then there are other things just in everyday life. Our everyday life as we live amongst our, our family members, amongst people in the world, might be poor service at a store or a restaurant. And we grumble and we complain about this. May I speak to a manager, please? Traffic. We grumble about traffic. That's uh, something that happens quite a bit. Our children. Our spouses. There's lots of opportunities, Right? All sorts of things that come up that bring opportunities for our flesh to step in and begin grumbling about the things around us. This is something to think about next time we have the news on. Well, it's interesting that this word that was used here in this text by Paul, he uses the same word that is found in the Greek translation of the Old Testament as it describes the people of Israel as they wander in the wilderness. They grumbled against Moses. They grumbled for lack of water. They grumbled because of the manna that God had blessed them with. They said, we don't have food. God gives them food. Now they're complaining about that food. And so they want the quail. So God sends quail and they grumble about the quail. They just, they, they can't be satisfied. They just grumbling about one thing or another. And they expressed their grumbling to Moses. They thought that they were complaining to Moses and to Aaron. But in Exodus chapter 16, verse 8, Moses says this. What are we? What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. And God ultimately judged the Israelites for their grumbling in the midst of the desert there. Well, this might not, okay, why is grumbling such a big deal? We might ask that question. Okay, yeah, we all do this. Well, why is this such a big deal? Like, why, why is this an issue? Well, there's five things that I thought of that really reveal something about our hearts when we are complaining about the circumstances that we find ourselves in life. First, it displays a lack of gratitude for what God is doing in your life. God has brought something into your life, and sometimes those things are not always pleasant. We don't enjoy those things. But as we've been studying this book of Philippians, we've been seeing that God uses even difficult and challenging circumstances for our good and His glory. And when we grumble and we complain, we lose sight of that. And it displays a lack of gratitude for what God is doing in your life. He's giving you opportunities to learn, to grow, to be sanctified through this process. And yet here we are complaining about it. It displays a lack of trust in what God is doing. Not only are we showing that we're not thankful for what God is doing, but it shows that we don't 
but we trust him and we're complaining. Man, this, this shouldn't be in my life right now. I'm, why is this happening? And we grumble and we complain. It's a lack of trust in what God is doing. Third, it can display a lack of taking personal responsibility. Oftentimes we complain about things that are happening to us without realizing that oftentimes it's our own choices that have led us into the situation in the first place. So we complain, trying to deflect our own personal responsibility. It displays selfishness. We're only thinking about me and my situation and not about what someone else is experiencing. We might be complaining about the fact we're receiving poor service and not realizing that maybe those workers are doing the best they can and it's, it's just they're having a difficult time that day. Selfishness. And ultimately, it displays pride. It's all about me. It's about me. I shouldn't be treated this way. I'm better than this. I should have gotten this, that, or the other. Pride. It's all about me. Ultimately, when we grumble and we complain about life's circumstances, we're putting ourselves in the position of God, thinking that we know best, that we know what should be happening in our lives right now. And if it's not happening according to what I have determined it should be, then this just isn't right. I'm going to grumble and complain about this. We're putting ourselves in the position of God. You think about that. So grumbling and complaining, it, it is a big deal. It, Paul says, no, we, we can't be going there. We shouldn't be doing this. We're to live lives of humble service to others, and we don't do that while grumbling under our breaths about our circumstances. But rather, if we're to think about this, uh, if we're not to be living life with, with grumbling, well, what's the opposite of grumbling? Well, it's joy. It's rejoicing. And that's been the theme of this whole letter this whole time. Paul has been expressing about how we're, he's living life in the midst of a, a, a difficult circumstances. He's in prison. He's writing to a church that's persecuted. And yet, there is a theme of joy found throughout this letter. Recognizing that God is at work. Paul says he knows that life isn't always easy. Sometimes you're stuck in prison for crimes you didn't commit, as Paul is. Sometimes you're persecuted because of your faith, be like the Philippians were when he was writing to them. Other times we face difficulties and challenges that, that they may challenge our faith, challenge our patience, and challenge our joy. And yet, Paul says, do all things without grumbling. Now, Paul, if there, if there was anybody that had a reason to complain, really, it would have been the Apostle Paul. And yet he approaches this with joy. And we're going to see that in a minute, that that he rejoices and he wants to rejoice with the church. He wants there to be a mutual rejoicing going on. So joy is the opposite of grumbling. And it displays the humility that should be evident within our lives. Because really, as this is, again, the, the practical application of everything that we have studied so far up to this point. The whole book leads up to this. Because we know that He who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Christ, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 6. Because we know that He is at work, even when we can't see it, as we also saw in chapter 1, verses 12 and following. Because we know that we have a Savior who gave up more than anyone else. Because we know that it is God who works in us both to will and to do for His good pleasure. 
In light of those things, we can live a life of joy. We can live a life that's free from grumbling because when we see what Christ has done, when we see what God is doing even now, even in the midst of our trying circumstances, how can we do anything but rejoice in knowing that He is at work? And He is not finished with us, but He is working His will within us. So we don't have to grumble. We don't have to complain. Because even the things that we are tempted to complain about, God is even using that for good in within your life even now. So we rejoice at what He is doing. Forsake grumbling and pursue joy. Well, grumbling, that's only one half of the equation in this verse. He says to do all things, yes, without grumbling, but also without disputing. Disputing. Do everything without disputing. This refers to the arguments that we have with one another. While we might express our complaints to others, sometimes, a lot of times, the grumbling that we do is even just within ourselves, right? We just kind of grumble and we mumble things under our breaths as we go about doing our lives. And that's that sound I just made, I do that with my kids all the time. That's the grumbling. Like we're, we're complaining about the situation. I don't want to do my chores. Okay. Well, when it comes to arguments, these are disputes that we have with one another. This requires at least two people. It's an argument, right? We need two or more people that have come to two or more conclusions about something. And the result is that there's an argument about whatever the situation, whatever the issues are. Now, in the context here, you know, Paul has been urging unity amongst the people. In the beginning of chapter 2, Paul says not to do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit. And when we talked about that passage, we talked about how there would have been people that probably would have been trying to jockey for position. They would have been trying to elevate themselves, elevate their own position within the church, trying to elevate their own agenda and pursue their own purposes in the midst of things. And Paul says, no, you're not supposed to do that, but rather set aside your own agenda, your own desires for the sake of serving others. Well, now here Paul says that we're to do things without disputing or arguing. And so to me, it's, it's not too much of a stretch to see how these things connect. When we're living lives trying to uh, further our own agendas and pursue the midst of things, when, when something comes against us that challenge that, we're going to fight for it, Right? We're fighting for our own agendas. We're fighting for our own purposes, the things that we want to see happen. We fight for those things. And Paul says that this is not to be the case within the body of Christ. The Philippians may have been jockeying for position and arguing for what they wanted out of a given situation. And, and if I'm being honest, just me personally, I know for my part that when I think I'm right about something... It's hard to let that go. <laughs> it's really hard to let that go. I want to argue about it. I want to show you you're, you're wrong about this. And I'm right. I'm clearly, I, 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 just, I have all the reasons laid out. Like I've thought about this before. And you just need to come to the same conclusions that I did. I take great pride in being right. And by golly, by the end of this conversation, you're going to see that. All right, that's, that's my natural tendency. That's... That's really where my flesh can get in the way of things. And I, that may be true within your own heart and life. I, you might relate to that a little bit. And if think if we're being honest, we can see this is true of American culture by and large. Are we like being right? right? We're independent thinkers here. What I think is right. 
So we need to be on guard. We need to be on guard. Now, does this mean that we're never going to have disagreements? No. We're going to have disagreements. That's just part of living life in a fallen world. Does this mean that we can never discuss those disagreements? Again, no. We should be able to have conversations and to address disagreements with one another. But we all know when a disagreement has crossed the line to becoming an argument, right? We all know when that has happened. I remember one time growing up during Bible study, there was a teacher who was walking the class through a particular passage of Scripture, and he was explaining things, and there was a, there was a disagreement with one gentleman who was in the class about the particular definition of a word that was in the text. And so as the teacher was teaching, that man respectfully, he raised his hand and said, you know, I, I'm not sure about that definition of the word that you gave. You know, I'm, I think it might mean this other thing instead. It, Really, what he was expressing wasn't that much of a difference. It was just a real slight nuance on the word. Just a very slight difference that just kind of approached it from a slightly different angle. Well, the teacher, he he says, okay, I I understand what you're saying, but really, this word actually means this. Well, in that moment, the gentleman who had raised his hand almost, almost kind of stomped his foot in that moment and says, no, it doesn't. It doesn't mean that. It means this other thing instead. And he was being rather forceful about that right there. And so there's, an op- there's this, all of a sudden, there was this conflict that just arose out of nowhere. Just poof, all of a sudden, there was a conflict. Well, the teacher had a few choices to make. He had some options before him. He could continue to argue his point and try to prove that he was correct. He could back down and admit that the other guy was right. Or he could just kind of, okay, you know what, let's, let's talk about this after things, and we'll discuss things more fully after the lesson. And wisely, the teacher chose door number three, and that's what he did. He didn't double down on his position. He didn't back down from his position, but rather he sought to bring the temperature of the room down and sought to dis, uh, just kind of dispel things and address the man's concerns after the lesson. But here was a man who was wanting to be argumentative about something. Things very quickly went from just a disagreement and a discussion to an argument. And if the teacher wasn't willing to have wisdom in that situation, there could have been a a battle of words right then and there. But rather he diffused it and he would not engage that way. And things ended up being resolved after the lesson. Well, all the time there are opportunities for disagreements to become arguments. In every aspect of life that we walk through. It's just opportunities all over the place. And Paul urges us, don't fall into that trap. Don't argue about things that are not necessary to be arguing about. It's not necessary. Can we have disagreements and that's going to happen? That's life in a fallen world. But that doesn't mean we have to sin on top of it by arguing, trying to prove that we're right about something. Similarly to grumbling, arguments of this nature, they reveal pride and selfishness within our own hearts. When we insist on our own way or that others come to view things the way we do, we fail to live humbly as Paul directs. So just as Paul seems to pit grumbling as the opposite of joy, here we find him kind of pinning this concept of disputing as an opposite of humility. There's opposites there. 
Now, it's interesting that Scripture gives us a few passages that address the concept of these, these arguments and where they come from. We find one in the book of James. I'm going to turn over there very briefly. James directly says where these arguments come from. This is James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. It says, What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, and so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. James is challenging the people here. Okay, where do these, we're disputing these arguments, these fights, these quarrels, where do they come from? Well, our own selfish desires. I want what I want when I want it, and I want it now. And we don't get our way. And so we fight and we quarrel about these things. James is challenging us, no, we, we should not approaching things this way. So I skip down to verse 6 there in James chapter 4. James writes, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Similarly to the Apostle Paul, James also pits an argumentative spirit against humility. These things do not exist simultaneously with one another. They are opposites to one another. Our disputes come from our own evil desires, our own selfishness, and so we need to be on alert against these things. We need to watch out for our own hearts. Because God opposes the proud, but He gives His grace to the humble. So we're not to argue, we're not to grumble, but rather we're to be joyful, we're to serve with humility to others. We ask why. Why are we to live life this way? Paul says it's because we stand before a watching world. So yes, humility demands that we live a life with joy, but humility also elevates our witness to the world. Humility elevates our witness to the world. Look with me back in Philippians chapter 2. I have to turn back over there from James. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15. After giving this instruction, do all things without grumbling or disputing, he gives us the reason why. Verse 15, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. When we live lives of humble deference and service to others, the world sees that. The world sees that. And the reason, there's a reason why the devil loves it when we are engaged in fights amongst ourselves. The devil loves to sow discord. He loves to plant the seeds of division within a body. He loves to stir up disunity. We see this within the church, even in our day, and in different various denominations in our nation. And sometimes we have to recognize that sometimes division is necessary to preserve truth. Sometimes disagreements are important over the nature of what Scripture says. 
But when the spirit of disunity and ill will becomes present, it is damaging to our witness before a watching world. The spirit of ill will and disunity is damaging to our witness before a watching world. Our witness is elevated when we live lives of humility. Now notice exactly what Paul says here. He, he seems to stack up some terms in this verse. He says, blameless, innocent, without blemish, that if you live your life without grumbling, without complaining, this is the result that will be. You will be blameless, innocent, and without blemish. Well, these three words in the Greek are stylistically similar. In fact, they, you wouldn't quite say that they rhyme, but they're so similar that, that they, they come close to that. They have a similar semantic range. The word blameless could be translated faultless. You could be examined and there's no fault to be found within you. Innocence literally could be translated unmixed, undiluted. It's pure. No mixture found within it. Without blemish carries the picture of a sacrificial lamb who is being offered to God, that there's no defect to be found there without blemish before God. So it's interesting that Paul seems to stick with language that would have brought to mind the Israelites in the wilderness. The Israelites grumbled, and Paul says, now you don't. You don't grumble. But as a result of the Israelites grumbling, the Lord called them a crooked and stiff-necked generation. And they had to continually make sacrifices to their God with unblemished lambs. So this imagery of the Old Testament picture is constantly on Paul's mind here. And here now Paul says, hey, okay, you are not to behave that way. That was how the Israelites were. They grumbled and they were a crooked generation. But now you, you're not to grumble. You're not to live that way. You're to live lives of joy. And and now you, you're not the crooked generation yourself, but you do live in the midst of a crooked generation and twisted generation. But now you are to offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God. That's what Paul says in the book of Romans. But this is the idea that's carried forth. A a lamb without blemish, offering yourself as a living sacrifice to God. Living in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Those words crooked and twisted are striking words. The word crooked means it's not straight, It's bent, and as a result, it is limited usefulness. can carry the connotation of dishonesty. If it's crooked, someone is crooked, they are not being honest with their dealings with one another. And that word twisted, actually, it has a fascinating word. It's similar to crooked in that it means to make crooked. This is actually a a, a participle in the original Greek here. It's it's something to make crooked. It speaks of moral perversion. It's not satisfied with being perverted itself, but rather seeks to pervert others as well. It is a twisted and twisting generation. Not satisfied with its own perversion, but seeking to bring that upon others as well. The Philippians of Paul's day were... Paul said that they lived in the midst of that crooked and twisted generation. Can we not say that that's true of our day as well? A a crooked and 
twisted generation, where dishonesty abounds. It is not enough that one chooses sinfulness, but they seek to lead others astray also. Some time ago, a very prominent pastor, very prominent in evangelicalism, wrote many books, was well-respected, spoke at conferences, etc. He stepped down from his church abruptly, announcing that he was seeking to pursue additional education because he was facing things that he didn't know how to deal with, and he thought more education would help. Well, it turned out that that was really not the full story. Sometime later, he announced that he was separating from his wife, and not long after that, he announced that he was actually departing from the faith altogether, and he announced that he no longer identified as a Christian, but had gone through a period of deconstruction. Well, that's news story as it broke and as it unfolded over time. It was sent ripples throughout evangelicalism, and it's a continuing story, unfortunately, because just this last week, this man announced that he was now selling an online course designed to help others deconstruct their faith also. Not satisfied with the deconstruction of his own faith, but rather seeking to lead others down the same path. So what's going on there? How are we to think about this? How are we to process as we see things like this going on in the world? Well, truly, this is actually nothing new. And this is, this is what it means to have a crooked and twisted and twisting generation. A generation that seeks to go their own way, but then also seeks to lead others to do the same. Think of Romans chapter 1 when Paul says that, People not only are engaged in these evil activities, but they give hearty approval to others who do so as well. Well, how are we to keep ourselves from their polluting influence? If this is something that the world is doing, that not only are they they crooked and perverted amongst themselves, but they're trying to pervert others and twist others also. If this is what they're trying to do and they're designed to do, how do we keep ourselves from being likewise polluted? Well, he's already given us part of the answer to that, and that is if we are to endure and pursue in our joy and humility, that's going to go a long way to keep ourselves and to make ourselves different and distinct from the world. Not only will that help guard our faith, but it will also be a witness and a testimony to that crooked generation that is around us. Paul says that it's through these things, through living a life free from complaint, a a life free from arguing, from unnecessary disputes amongst ourselves, when you're living lives of joy and humility and harmony, that we shine. We shine as lights before the world. Lights to this crooked and twisted generation. If you can just keep yourself from complaining and selfishly arguing with others, guess what? The world is going to see the light of Christ within you. They're going to see that. They're going to see that something's different. And that light will overcome the darkness. Especially, especially when we are going through hard times, as Paul and the Philippians were, as he was in prison and the church was persecuted. All right, it's easy to not complain when things are going well, right? That's easy. There's nothing to complain about. Everything's just going well. But it's when life is hard and we face trials and tribulation and difficulties. That's when it's difficult. 
But that's when we have the greatest opportunity to shine our lights before the world. When we live in the midst of this crooked generation, when we live free from complaint, we are going to shine. Humility elevates our witness to the world. Third, humility drives us to dependence on the Word. Look with me at verse 16. Where Paul says, holding fast to the word of life. So this is a continuing on of the same sentence. There's a continual flow of thought here. As you shine in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation, holding fast to the word of life. Holding fast to the word of life. You know, we live in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation. It seeks to pervert others. So how do we withstand against that onslaught? By holding fast to the word of life. This is the gospel message, the word of life. Jesus Christ became flesh, took on humanity. We just, we just went through this not too long ago, right? Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, and being found in the likeness of men, made himself obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's the gospel. It's the good news. This is the word of life. This is the word that brings us life. That awakens our souls and that that gives us eternal life. That when we believe the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are granted eternal life. This is the message that that continues us on, that, that keeps us moving forward when we keep our eyes on the cross of Christ. We hold fast to the word of life. I don't know if you're ever tempted to think that the gospel is only for unbelievers, but we need to not succumb to that temptation. We need the gospel even as believers. We need to be reminded of our own sin, driven back to the cross of Christ. We need to revel in the grace and the mercy that has been shown to us and rejoice in the resurrection and ascension of Christ. We need the gospel. How are we to maintain purity from the world even as we live in the midst of this crooked generation? How are we to shine as lights and not succumb to the darkness? Well, it's found in His Word. It is found in the Gospel of Christ. It is found in the good news that we have in the cross. Now, this is one reason why we observe communion weekly. This is one reason why we seek to remind ourselves and and come back to this on a weekly basis. It's to center ourselves back on the person that we proclaim. To center ourselves back on this this person who has called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. To drive us back to our need and dependence on Christ. That is why we, we observe this. When we are being humble, we recognize that we cannot live this life on our own, but we desperately need the sustaining grace of the cross of Christ within our lives. We desperately need the sustaining grace of the wisdom that is found in His Word and the direction of the Holy Spirit. And to say, you know what, I don't need to be in God's Word. I don't need to be a part of God's people. I don't need to be reminded of these things. That is arrogance within our own hearts. But it is a humble heart. 
that holds fast to the word of life. So this humility that Paul is urging us to display, it drives us to dependence on the word. And finally, humility rejoices in the work of God. Humility rejoices in the work of God. Keep reading in verse 16 after he says, We hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. But even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul greatly desired to see the Philippians persevere unto the end. He desires us so much that, that he doesn't mind, he says, even being poured out as a drink offering. Paul is continuing the, the language and the imagery of the Old Testament Israelites. He says, even though, he says, uh, through humility you can be without blemish in the midst of a crooked world. Not like the Israelites, they're grumbling and they're crooked, but no, no, you're different. You don't grumble and you're in the midst of a crooked generation, living your life without blemish, as a sacrifice to the Lord. And now Paul says, okay, you're that living sacrifice. Well, I'm willing to to pour out my life in service to you for the sake of your sacrifice before God. It's like he's saying, I want to help make your life acceptable to him, even if that means I lose my own. It's an example of humble service for the sake of others. And again, Paul literally does not know if his situation is going to lead to life or death, if he's going to be released or if he's going to be executed. He does not know. But Paul says, whatever the outcome, it's worth it. Yes, I may suffer many things, but it's worth it. If I can do even just a little bit to bring you closer to the cross of Christ, if I can even just do a little bit to make you more like Christ, if I can spur you on... In your, in your walk and in your journey, in your Christian life, if I, can help, if I can help you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, even if it costs me my life, he says, I'm glad to do that. I'm glad and I rejoice in this. Because ultimately Paul knows that he is standing and he is working and behind him is the work of God working through him. For it is God who works within you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So Paul rejoices. Even in the midst of the difficulty, he rejoices. Even if it means his life is lost, he rejoices because God is at work. And he wants the church to rejoice with him. He says, rejoice with me. The way this is constructed is very fascinating. There's there's no place in this book that more highly emphasizes this theme of joy, even in the midst of hardship, than right here. There is this, this word is is stacked four times in the midst of this. We could translate it literally, I rejoice and rejoice with you. There's almost a, a redundancy in the midst of this. I rejoice and rejoice with you. Now you rejoice and rejoice with me. There's a compounding of joy that is going on here. Just as they all, I, I am rejoicing because God is at work. I'm rejoicing because even if this means it costs me my life, it's worth it to see you growing in your faith. And so there ought to be mutual joy of, over what God is doing in us and through us. Humility rejoices in the work of God. 
even if that means it costs us dearly. So as Paul has given us these, really these practical applications of the principles of humility as he has laid them out. Okay, I want you to live lives of humility. Here's the example of Jesus Christ. Well, this is how it ought to work itself out in your life. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's God who works in you after all. Live your life free of complaining and arguing. And in doing so, you will shine as lights in the world. Holding fast to the word of life. Humility demands a life free from complaint and arguments, but rather joy instead. Humility elevates our witness to the world. Humility drives us to dependence on the word, and humility rejoices in the work of God, even if it costs us our life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to work humility within our hearts today. Lord, I know myself, I am a proud man. Your word has has convicted me. It has shown like a mirror with, uh, upon my own heart that I still have arrogance and pride within me, a desire to always be right, a desire to have my own way, a desire to prove to others and to convince them that, of course, they are wrong and I am right. Lord, I ask you to help me to be humble. I pray that you would work humility within my own heart and life, beginning right now. I pray that I would not elevate myself or my own perceived wisdom higher than it ought to be, but that you would keep me humble and help me to ever be dependent upon you and your word. Help me to hold fast the word of life. Lord, it is in that gospel that should dispel any notion that we have any reason for pride and arrogance. Because the gospel teaches us that we are sinful, poor, wretched human beings, and that is me. Lord, I pray the same things for for everyone who is seated here today, that as we behold the glory of Christ, that it would drive us to humility. That as we live our lives in the midst of a crooked and and perverse, twisted generation, that you would help us to shine as lights in the world through the humility and the joy that we display as we interact and live lives with one another. May the world see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven, which is what Jesus Christ said in Matthew chapter 5. And may we rejoice knowing that you are at work knowing that there is grace greater than our sin, that your mercy is more than our pride and our arrogance. Thank you for the gift of Christ. And I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.